Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's program, we speak with Anne Bishop Schaup, an advancement leader whose extraordinary journey has taken her from the bush plains and fishing boats of her rugged Alaskan childhood to her current role as Associate Vice President at Michigan State University, one of the world's largest. There, she applies her appreciation for the environment, hard and honest work, deep authenticity, and strong values-based belief in philanthropy to her office and her team. Her mantra is be kind, be confident, and show up that way every day. She definitely shows up that way in her conversation today. So tell me about being from Alaska. Where, where are you from originally? So I was born on the Kenai Peninsula, but um, very early on, first grade, we moved to Kodiak Island. So I grew up on Kodiak, graduated from high school there, um, really first through 12th grade. And Kodiak is a massive island. I mean, it's a, it's second only to the big island of Hawaii. So it's a very large island geographically, but a very small town um, and pretty rugged. Um, I don't know that we thought it was rugged compared to some other places that we had seen in Alaska, but, you know, compared to places I've lived since, um, there's definitely a, a grit about it um, that I really value and appreciate. What makes it so gritty? Well, I think there's, um, there are a lot of people doing very difficult, dangerous work, right? So uh, I grew up in a, uh, well, my, my biological family, my, my father, my parents were teachers. My father was a bush pilot. And um, so my parents were divorced when I spent time with him. You know, he was flying around in little planes um, in Alaska and sometimes big planes delivering cargo in very rugged environments with wicked weather, um, you know, managing your own equipment in an airplane, right? Without a <clears throat> massive group of hangers or people to help you at different cases. Sometimes you're landing on frozen lakes, right? And you're carrying a rifle because you could encounter an animal that doesn't like that you're there. Um, and in my, my other family growing up with my mom and my stepdad, he was a commercial fisherman and, uh, that's a, that's a dangerous business. You know, you're out on big water, um, very cold water. Some mechanically goes wrong. It's going to take a long time for people to reach you. Your the labor is tough, hard work. I grew up, um, refabbing crab pots and cutting bait and, um, running hydraulics and wearing <laughs> rubber boots and, you know, uh, getting covered in, in fish curry in my rain gear. And, um, so there's just an appreciation for physical work that I think carries over in an, I can do it kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, that's pretty prevalent across those of us that have been born and raised in Alaska. Before you move on from that, I, I have to ask, did you ever go up in that plane? That my dad flew? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He he used to have a, a DC-3 that he flew and his favorite memories, some of the, or so he will tell me, I'm sure there are others, are of, 
you know, flying flying around Alaska um, way lower than probably you'd be permitted to do so these days with me sitting on the left-hand side of his captain's seat with my right arm around him and the other kind of left arm propped up on the window looking out like, doesn't every kid do this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so many, many times up in, a, up in a plane with him and many times out in the water with my stepdad and family as well. That must have been both exciting and kind of a, a lonely landscape looking down on it. Did it give you a feeling of being a part of the world or being kind of separate from the world? Gosh, I don't I don't know that I thought of it quite like that. I will I will say that when I look back as a parent at some of the places that we were where my where my parents had us as children, um, I think they were courageous to take us there. Either that or I've grown soft, right? <laughs> In my willingness to um I want to be close to hospitals and and things like that with my kids. And there were times where we you know, would get in a boat and we would go across the Shalakov Strait and Geographic Harbor, Katmai National Park, some of these areas that we fished. And it was just us, just our family on the boat, not seeing any other humans um, for days and days while we did our work and you know, dangerous work, right? Where somebody could legitimately um, get injured and, you know, being on beaches with bears and all kinds of things. And I think we just, we wondered at it, but it also was just sort of our world that felt normal and, and right and not lonely and not desolate. Um, it's just what we knew. It's what felt natural to us. Um, but now looking back on it, I go, <laughs> somebody, you know, stuck a wire through their hand or a knife had slipped or, you know, if I, if that were my kid now, how would I feel about that? And um, my tolerance, I think for that has slipped from where it was back in the day. What was the most dangerous thing that you remember from your childhood? Gosh, the most dangerous thing, probably. Um, there are a couple of times that we were in some pretty bumpy flights where things weren't quite going as they should that that my dad masterfully managed his way out of. But the one that immediately comes to mind is um, being in what we called Cabin Cove. Um, overhauling pots, which we had stored on the beach for the winter and the tide, big tides come in and out. So you kind of go in in your skiff and you're going to be there for the day because the tide's going to go out and your skiff is big and heavy and it's not moving once you're there. And I was kind of up in the alders a little bit working on some stuff and a brown head poked through the alders and looked at us. And I scrambled down off of the pots and ran over to my family and we backed down to the beach and he sauntered out to see what we were doing. Um, and that in itself wasn't, it was closer than we would have liked. What, what, what bothered us more is that he, he backed off a little bit, went around the edge of the rock and came back at us another direction. <laughs> um, and I, my, my stepdad actually had to fire in the air because he was not giving up this bear. He wanted to know what we were about and what we had. And, um, we stayed very close to the skiff until the, until the water came back in and then we were. My sister and I were ready to swim, but we knew that that also was not going to be a smart idea because the water was very cold. Um, so nothing happened, but but it is very uh, firmly in my memory as something that could have gone sideways and thankfully did not. It all sounds very vivid, like you've <laughs> forgotten a moment of not just that experience, but the, the whole of your childhood. 
yeah, it's it it really was um, formational for and, sure. And it must be foundational to your interaction with the environment, which has been uh, a thread throughout your life and your your professional life as well. Yeah, I I think that's true. Um, I, I feel a great obligation um, to be responsible stewards of um, the opportunity to live on this miracle, the planet that we have. And um, with great progress comes also some pretty enormous problems. And um, we're innovative creatures, but we've created some pretty massive challenges to which we need to respond with haste or we're going to be in a very difficult spot. So that for sure is also centering and grounding and, and probably um, stems from those very formational moments in my childhood where I was so connected to um, things growing on their own. Right. I did not grow up with a lawn or, or the things that I have now, or that I think of as a yard, it, what was our yard was what was out there and had been there before us. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm sure that that's part of my, my thinking as well. You know, you did choose to leave. That must've been quite, quite a departure because I know you went off uh, to Princeton for school. How did you choose to leave this place that was such a part of, of you and then to go to a place that was so entirely different? That's a great question. And I think um, part of it was, um, as I mentioned, my parents were divorced. My dad left Alaska and ended up in San Francisco flying commercially. And so in the summers, I had the opportunity to go to San Francisco, which is quite a bit different from Kodiak, Alaska, um, and broaden my horizons in other ways right? Very different kinds of people, um, people with different kinds of relationships, different kind of living conditions. I mean, just very uh, jarring initially and then fascinating. And because he was a pilot, um, we had the opportunity to travel a number of different places. And then my my mom and my stepdad were also interested in us seeing different things. So, so we took a number of trips with them. So I had a, a level of comfort with kind of navigating airports and being in places that didn't look like Kodiak. So that in and of itself, the fact that I would choose to leave, I don't think was shocking to people around me. Um, the part that was sort of hilarious was upon landing in Princeton, I remember the first night in my dorms, kind of going up and down the halls and meeting people and and just being so oblivious, right? I'm, I'm meeting people who are, who've been to Andover and Exeter and these amazing schools. And I have zero recognition of what they're offering. I'd heard of Interlochen Arts Academy because <laughs> my sister had gone there, but I really knew next to nothing about private schools. I had been a public school student. And so my response to that was not, oh, that's amazing. What was that like? It was like, oh, I went to Kodiak High School, right? I had a pretty naive response to it. Um, so I, I'm sure to them, I was, pretty dramatic fish out of water, so to speak. And, and uh, but, but you were introduced to all the rest of the, uh, of this world through, of course, that experience of going back and forth to San Francisco and all these other things. But I, I guess I had forgotten that you had a sibling who went off to Interlochen, which is in itself kind of a fish out of water experience for many people. Um, 
So she must have been bringing some of that back. Which is this a younger sibling or older sibling? Oh, it's an older an older sibling actually. Um, quite a lot older. She's she's twelve years older than I am, and so she had, um, at the by the encouragement of her choir director in Alaska, applied to go to Interlochen and then had gone on to college after that. So I had older siblings who were um, in college in the lower 48, as we call it from Alaska. Um, so per perhaps that's the other part of it being kind of a foregone conclusion that I might also leave the state to go to school. Well, then you went off and, and you did go to school and, uh, and you, did you study English there? I'm trying to remember what you. So, I did. I did. And I, I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. Um, but that's where I landed. I, I thought I was going to be a bear biologist, Jay. That's what I thought I was going to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I ended up finally being being convinced by a good friend um, at Princeton that um, I should do something that I I really enjoyed, that I didn't need to determine the course you know, of my life trajectory as a freshman in college, that I should really, you know, invest in this time to explore and learn to think and that that would be what employers were looking for. Um, and that I didn't have to be so tied up in, you know, making a decision about what I was going to do until I was 70 as a 17 year old. And that was great advice. Um, he continues to give great advice to this day. <laughs> oh, this is a, this is a friend you've maintained. This is a friend I made. Yeah. Who was a, a classmate of mine at school. Uh, it's funny that you, when you were describing that, you said the thing that employers might value. Were you already thinking about employment? I mean, it sounds like you came from a life where work was just a part of what you did. And so maybe you were thinking about employment in the same way many college students do. But were you already kind of fashioning an idea of the things that you might do beyond, of course, being a bear biologist? I think so. I think I thought that there were things I needed to get out of the college experience that. Um, that if I missed some steps, other doors would not be open to me. <clears throat> Maybe, you know, like I need to decide right now if I'm going to be a doctor, because if I'm going to be, there are things that I need to take to keep that door open. Right. Instead of feeling like part of the collegiate experience, which I really believe now um, is the experience of being with other students asking questions, right. And learning new things and if I were to go back and do college over again, I think I would do it very differently. Um, How's that? I was really, um, <laughs> as a, a fourth grader, I remember reading a book about Helen Keller and she was, I think, valedictorian and graduated summa cum laude or something. And for whatever reason, fourth grade is when they started assigning grades. I kind of decided that that was something that was important that I needed to do that. And so I, I had this impression that, you know, um, GPA was really, really critical. And so not that I didn't think that studying and, you know, these hard questions and critical thought were important. I totally agree with that. But but the grade was still a really important end result. And I took that with me to college. And literally nobody has ever asked me what my GPA in college was, right? I mean, that experience, if I were to go to do it now, I would back way off on the GPA and I would dive into the clubs and the um the reading groups and the theater groups and the different things that I could have done to have more experiences in the collegiate moment, as opposed to a grade that was a notch higher than, you know, it might've been. Um, 
And I counseled other students to take that approach as well, because there was so much there on that campus that I had never seen or heard of before. And there, and I never could have in a million years touched all of it. Right. But I could have experienced more of it if I had granted myself the grace to um, back off the, the grade performance to be able to get a little bit more space for other experiences. It's interesting because when you talk about the grit of the place where you grew up, it sounds like you were applying that same kind of principle that it wasn't just the image of Helen Keller as the valedictorian, but it was also just what you did. You just put yourself to work. Yeah, I think I think that's part. That's definitely part of my DNA, um, and and how I show up even over the course of my career when events were taking place. Right, like I'm I'm there helping throw tables around and chairs around, and um, because if there's if I observe that there's work to be done, and other people are doing it, um, I'm right. My intention is to be right there with them. Right, right? Um, and that's certainly a carryover from. From, I think my training as a as a kiddo on a fishing boat. And that's something I know that's that's I'm sure served you very well in the world of advancement. Uh, but before you got into that world, you, you moved on and you worked, I know, at uh, is it McMaster Car, which is I did. Is that yeah. an e-commerce company or what what uh what kind of work were you doing? What because you were there for several years and then you moved into this field. What what were you doing there? <laughs> so McMaster Car Supply Company is an industrial supply company um, akin to Granger, but it's it's privately held. It's a very successful, very interesting company um, that at, the, at least at the time that I was hired really prided itself on hiring people in from a vast variety of majors. So, so they weren't looking just for, you know, finance majors or supply chain majors or what have you. They were looking for the romance language folks and so, because they wanted a diversity of perspectives brought into their management training program, which is what I joined. Um, and I thought it was awesome because I'd grown up wearing jeans and steel-toed boots and driving forklifts. And here I was going to be able to graduate from Princeton and put on steel-toed boots again and be in a warehouse environment. I knew that kind of um, culture pretty well. And there was an office side and a, a warehouse side, but but um, the physicality of part of that business felt very comfortable to me. Um, and this was back, you know, in the late, gosh, it would have been 97 to 2000, just late stage of 99 when I left. Um, they were very earnestly at that time looking at things like time to ship, right? Like how fast from a moment somebody dials in to place an order with us, can we get that order shipped and out the door mm. pre-Amazon, right? Mm. So, um, and we were really good at it. We got that down to a science. Um, and being part of that logistical thinking was, I just found it fascinating and, and still actually have connections to some of the folks that, that came up in that training program. We've, a number of them gone on to do some really interesting things. And, and the, the variety of thinkers we had together in that group was pretty fascinating. A lot of people would go into a program like that, and then they'd go into the world of consulting where they're just telling other people how to do things and setting up systems and so forth, but that was not your path. No, I think what I realized um, for me personally was I needed to have a closer orientation to mission. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of extremely bright people 
working that, let's just take one of the problems, time to ship problem, right? Like what, what kind of, if we have an object, where are we going to put it on a shelf? How far down a row so that we don't create an injury to our worker who has to pick the item, but we could get it out the door very quickly. What's its proximity to other items that people often order with it? I mean, there are all these interesting questions, right? Wrapped up in that. But what dawned on me at the time, I started looking at FEMA <laughs> because I felt like I love the work that I'm doing with the employees and thinking about um, performance and their job trajectory and what kind of climate we're building so that they feel great about coming to work. And I, I love these logistical puzzles, but I wish it were about delivery of sandbags and food on the front lines of a flood mm. with volunteer management, right? I, I wanted it to be um, more closely aligned with, with a, a purposeful mission or calling of some kind. And that caused me to really stop and think what was important to me and what kind of path did I want to be on moving forward from there. So how did you find your way to Interlock? And I mean, you explained that you already knew about Interlock and of course, yeah. but, but, but why Interlock? So my husband's from Traverse City. <laughs> okay. um, Kodiak has a very large Coast Guard base and Traverse City has a very large air station because of service to the Great Lakes. And so Dan's best friend in middle school was son of a Coast Guard family. They did a tour in Traverse City, and then they came up for a three-year tour in Alaska, where he was my best friend. And then they went back to Traverse City, and I went to Traverse City to meet him, or just to, to visit him, and met his best friend, Dan. And that's kind of all she wrote. Um, and so suddenly had an, aside from always wanting to follow my sister, um, to interlock in because I was a musician myself, I suddenly had an, we had another reason, right? To, to be in that area. We loved the water. His family is there in spades. We had friends there. And so um, I initially was with McMaster car in New Jersey, and then we moved to Ohio. And then when I sort of had this moment of, I can progress in my career at McMaster, or I can do something utterly different. Um, we did the utterly different thing. And, and I quit my job at McMaster without knowing what that next thing would be and ended up relocating to Traverse City and waiting tables and substitute teaching and doing whatever we needed to do to be in a place that we loved while I looked for the next thing. And ultimately that next thing did pop up um, at Interlochen and a combination of, of coordination of volunteers and running of an arts mentoring program in Detroit at the time. And then um, you said you were already a musician. So what were you playing and, and uh, what, what, uh, what did it feel like to enter the campus being a musician? <laughs> I, I grew up playing piano and clarinet mm -hmm. and um, it felt awesome. I mean, I'd, I'd walked on the Interlochen campus before, but I used to joke that I never was able to go to camp there and I didn't make, their, make it there for academy. So I found another way to shove my foot in the door. And that was as a member of staff. Um, and so it was magical, right? I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of time at Interlock and you know this better than I do as an alum, but it's just a magical place. And the talent of those students, um, their ability to show up on that campus and be who they are and be around other students who um, carry a similar um, value for things that they value is remarkable. And um, it was a wonderful place to 
begin a career in advancement because I had no idea that's what I was doing at the time. <laughs> right. And and, uh, and you were also doing it in a place where uh, you you had this access to not just Traverse City, but the whole environment as a whole. And Interlochen is very much of that place. For those who haven't been there, it's uh, lodged between these two small lakes in the middle of the woods. Uh, and so while the experience has that magic of, of music and, and the arts, that's so special to the students and other people who visit there, it really is a, a place that's embedded in the physical world. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I mean, there there probably is something about the power of place in most of the things that I've done. And Interlochen certainly has it in spades, both, both I would say, the environmental space and, and the spiritual um, drive of those places. They just have their own character mm-hmm. um, that's very clear and um, become part of you to some degree they're easy to love and to own and to advocate for. Right. Right. Now the advocating part I know was, as you said, it was new. You didn't even know that you were entering this, this strange province of advancement. And what was the first job you took on at Interlochen? So um, it was an interesting blend of things. It was in the, the time, gosh, what did we call ourselves? The alumni parents and volunteers office, I think. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, the volunteer corps at Interlochen, which was substantial, everything from planting flowers to, you know, sewing costumes to ushering shows to stuffing mailings, right? We had hundreds of volunteers that were interested in in being in that sacred space of Interlochen and participating in this mission. And then there was also, at the time, a program called Interlochen Arts Mentoring that um, ran for, gosh, it was a week or two in Detroit. designed to give really um, broad exposure, hands-on experience to a variety of arts uh, programs to kids, mostly through boys and girls clubs in the city. Um, so I did that for a year and then I transitioned. The other half of my job is that IM program went away, um, became um, standing up a class agents program through the Interlochen Arts Academy classes and ultimately an alumni ambassadors program for admissions as well. Such an important program. And it's one that Interlochen and other places have struggled to implement and then to sustain. But when I talked to you before offline, you, you told me this story about kind of making this, this ju- discovery, I guess, about the importance of this work to yourself. Um, and I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you said something to the effect that you found your calling there. Can you talk about how you... No. <laughs> Covered that this was what you did to do while working at this 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 uh, strange little place called Interlochen. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you say that because I, I couldn't remember which story you're referencing, and then all of a sudden it leapt to mind. There are these kind of crystal memories we have, right? Um, one of the things that I had was the um, the student alumni council. So a lot of the the active you know students in the academy who wanted to be engaged with alumni would come in and they would make thank you calls too alumni donors and just tell them how much their support meant and so on. And we did things like a lock-in to raise money for the senior class gift and that kind of thing. And at the time, there was a director of annual giving uh, in the advancement office or development, as we called it at the time. And and there really was not um, a lot of engagement on the part of 
alumni and giving and or really awareness. There wasn't a culture deep into the student pool of what philanthropy mean, meant to their experience of interlocking, right? I think at the time, 70% of students or something were experiencing some form of financial aid and, and certainly the programs that occurred on campus, um, people supporting that as well. And so even if you didn't go there on aid, your experience of interlocking would be dramatically different without philanthropy. And I was trying to think about how to how to build that culture, but I really knew nothing about how to go about it in those days. And I just remember like starting to draft a memo to myself. I don't think it went anywhere, but um, it was entitled, you know, how to turn name of the alumni director into a rock star. And I remember thinking about that and going, I may, I may have found my thing. I never would have thought it was this, but I'm excited about this. Like I'm excited about having people feel the importance of this work and, and wanting to be part of, of this machine of, of, of this community really of, of people that are pulling together to make this experience possible. And um, I think I may have even told my mom, she was probably scared because she didn't know what it meant <laughs> that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this thing and I don't know much about it, but it feels like something I'm, I need to explore. She was back in Alaska still, is that right? Yes, she's still there today. Even. Yeah. And so you were interlocking, I know, for a number of years doing this, this great work. And then you moved over and had a chance to do work with this one of these big, you know, major loves of your life uh, with the environment through the Leelanau Conservancy, where you were serving as the director of charitable giving. How did that come about? How did you choose to make that move? And what was most important about working there for you? Gosh, so um, it was it was a mission pull for me for sure. Um, there's something very concrete about doing land and water protection work um, that was that was very appealing. I, we happened to live in Leelanau County at the time, and so we had um, invested in property there because we loved it so much. And it was a rare opportunity. It was the first time they had ever posted a position like this. And so I don't even remember how it came to my attention, but I remember writing the cover letter. And at the time I was writing the cover letter saying to my husband, I feel like I'm writing a love letter, right? Because um, I could draw on so many of my experiences of what it was to, to grow up in a truly wild place. And then the meaning that that provided to me and wanting to protect that for my children who were very actively, you know, playing in the woods outside of our house. Um, so I, I did go join the Conservancy. It was a wonderful experience. It was eight years of really hard, but very productive work. Um, really earnest organization with a lot of integrity um, and an amazing board and staff. And it was just magical. And I learned a lot there. It's, uh, you know, working at a small nonprofit as a director of charitable giving, you have to be the Swiss Army knife, right? So I actually think that's a superpower for, for people who, it isn't often that we track people like that into higher ed fundraising, but I actually think it's a superpower if you can find them because they know enough to be um, dangerous about a variety of topics. So an example I would use is I had to know enough about planned giving to know that what I was hearing might indicate that a charitable gift annuity could be useful, but then I could call in an expert, right? But um, I also had to know enough about that for membership <laughs> to make sure we met our operating goals. And so it was very um, broad 
um, training ground for me in the way that I think a, a larger organization might not have been. And very nimble. That's a beautiful place up there. And a, a lot of people who might listen don't know that area. Why is that area so important? Why, why is it so unnecessary to conserve? Oh boy, um, it's it's a well, all of Michigan is a peninsula, but the Leelanau Peninsula is a peninsula within a peninsula. It's entirely surrounded, except to the south, by Lake Michigan mm -hmm. uh, and Grand Traverse Bay. And so, you know, the Sleepy Bear Dunes National Park is there. Um, amazing forested tracks, beautiful farmland, and really unique microclimates that grow stone fruits that can't be grown other places because. The, the climates change as you go up to the top of a hill versus down in a valley and places stay warm that might not otherwise stay warm with the air coming in off the lake because they're at a different, you know, um, level of topography. And so when, when you knit all those things together with inland lakes, it's just magnificent. And, and it, nothing, nothing says it better, I think, than flying over the top of it in a little plane. And seeing how it isn't just the farmland, it isn't just the natural land or the lakes, it's how they're all um, presented together and, and you get to be present in this magnificent space. Um, it is a place apart for certain. And, um, and, it, and it has a character about it as well. It has a number of, of villages that have retained their own special feeling about them from from Leland, which has a really, you know, fishing background um, to some of the other communities. It's just, it's just unique. And we actually still, we still have a house there. We've, we've rented it now for many years, um, but we're not ready to let go <laughs> yet. So we may end up up there at some a lot, point. A lot of people struggle with making a case for their organizations, even if the case seems really understandable and clear to us when we're representing it. Sometimes it's hard to put it on paper. Did the people you talked with in the area, maybe more broadly around the country, did they understand the value of this? How hard did you have to work to help people to understand the value of what you just described and why it was important to save it? So I think what was really, um, it wasn't like, uh, trying to make a big generic argument to a bunch of folks who'd never been there, right? I mean, we had we had people who have spent generations of their family have spent time coming up to these places in the summertime, or they have given up really significant opportunities in other places in order to live in this community and raise their children there, or they um, lived where they um, needed to for a period of time and opted to retire there. So there was almost no argument <laughs> to be made on that they didn't already feel in their hearts, right, about the importance of the work. The argument that had to be made maybe was why it was a threat, right? Why, why, why the immediacy of the threat? What's changed? That what has been present for three generations of my family now is at risk of not being present. Um, and there were some big changes, you know, um, Secret places don't stay secret for long. And when they don't, um, land values rise. And then things like farming, which um, needs to have a particular value for a farm to be profitable, um, become unprofitable when that land is now priced at the value of putting 40 homes on it, right? So 
So trying to make intergenerational transfer of farmland in particular possible um, because of its importance to the character of the landscape and the character of the communities um, was, was an argument we had to get good at. And I will be the first to say, I'm, I hope the executive director is not listening right now because I'm, I'm seven years off my, my case game for that organization. But I, <laughs> I, I really believe that um, we did our homework on that and tried to be thoughtful and respectful of, of listening to the community and reflecting back what they wanted to hear and um, tried to do so with great integrity. And, and so I continue to support that organization to this day. And it's clearly a place that you love. That's why you've held on to the house, among other things. But yeah, you, right. you did decide to go. And I know you took this, this great skill set with you that you were able to apply to this passion that you have for purpose. Um, then you went off to another gorgeous part of the world, but a very different mission statement when you went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. So what drew you there? What did you do? Well, there was a half step in between that really drew us to Boulder. And that was that... Um, I went from working for the Leelanau Conservancy to working for an organization called the Climate Reality Project, which is focused on um, generating a really informed, proactive um, populace, right, on the issue of climate change. And, and that was a very, very natural transition from where I was at the Conservancy because I, the more I studied about climate and I was pretty laser focused on it, especially in the last two years of my work at the Conservancy, just personally, um, 20 hours a week volunteering in various organizations and reading and, and gaining some sea legs on, on what the science was. Um, I became very concerned that all the things that we had worked to protect were fundamentally at risk, unless we as a planet, right, we as citizens of the planet chose to make some different choices about, about um, carbon emissions. And so um, we actually went to Boulder to work for that organization because of that mission. Um, and then um, the university was right there doing tremendous climate work as well. And um, I had no idea what their chops were in that arena, but boy, did I learn quickly. There's a ton of just world-class climate work, particularly in ICE, um, happening at Boulder and in wildfire and that kind of thing. And so when Boulder, after I've been there about a, a year or so, I don't, I'm usually someplace longer, but um, Boulder reached out and asked if I would, you know, consider looking at a role in the College of Engineering. And um, so I listened and ended up making that leap to the College of Engineering. Uh, gosh, it would have been 2015. And that, that was quite a change. I mean, at least in terms of mission, although uh, you must've felt, I know it's not Alaska, but you had <laughs> mountains there. You had a lot of things there that must've felt a little bit familiar. Yeah, I was very glad to be back in the shadow of the mountains for sure. It was very different for our family who are much, my, my husband and my girls are much more water oriented because of, of all the time in mm -hmm. Michigan, not a lot of mountains in Michigan. I would say. Um, so, um, but the university environment was certainly new for me. I had been to university. I certainly value higher education, but I didn't understand all the ins and outs of how to get, you know, work done across colleges in a university, how to wrap a big idea together across various disciplines. Um, 
what are the needs of faculty? What um, might be the pressures on an early career faculty member that are different from the pressures on a, on a you know, a, a late career faculty or a very successful full, full professor? Um, all of that was was language I had to learn. What I did, um, what I did have were some pretty serious fundraising chops at that point and a real belief in um, the work I did see happening in the College of Engineering and the kinds of things that they were really good at. Um, and they were also um, at the time, and this has become, um, as I've understood more, much more about it, of greater importance to me year over year over year, they had a commitment to diversifying engineering that I really staunchly believe in. And um, and I had a belief in the power of team, right? I really wanted to try and build a very strong team that um, felt empowered to do really great work on their own, but also to rely on one another to, to achieve what we could together, right? And so um, that's the work that I really set out to do um, in that college. And, and I think that we achieved quite well. It was a marvelous team to work with. And that's the team piece of, you know, making sure you're listening and learning that language and getting people to work together and addressing all those difficult questions you mentioned. Um, but then you went into principal gift work, which I know you're still having to obviously collaborate and all those things. But as the associate vice chancellor in that area, you must have had a lot of individual engagement with donors who were then talking about mission as well as their own personal identity attached to the place. And um, how was that different for you? And what were the major challenges? Um, gosh, let me think about this for a second. So I think I'm a, I'm a strong believer in trying to build programs and teams that um, keep the donor experience as uh, so what I'm looking for as um, as solid or as contiguous, continuous as, as it possibly can be. So while there certainly were times that I was, you know, in front of a donor in the context of a principal gift, um, what we were trying to do more in that space was to build a program for the university where people who had done the really hard work of either discovering a relationship, cultivating a relationship, moving that along to a place where a principal gift was possible, that they had tools and guidance and coaching to be able to pick up skills that maybe they'd not ever had occasion to learn, right? So there was, there was even in that context, a really strong process orientation to um, building a program where the work of many could put principal gifts on 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 steroids for the university, right? There's only so much that one principal gift officer can do mm -hmm. if they're going to be the only one managing those gifts. But if their role is as coach and as uh, strategist and building avenues to resources where they're needed, whether that's in marketing and communications around a really strong impact report that's curated to that donor or a proposal that's curated to the donor or an event, right, that, that is meaningful to a family, um, creating those avenues where they could get help, but allowing the people who'd done the work over a period of many, many years to continue to do the work and to show up in a new way and to grow, to me, is very important. And so that was, I would say, that the core work of what um, I worked to achieve in that role, rather than to be 
you know, in front of, of donors in the way that I had been for many, many years prior to that, that position. That's a, such an important distinction and that you're drawing. And it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, that in building that kind of ecosystem um, where everybody's working in, in synchronicity towards the objectives and welcoming donors in to participate in that, now, the individual giving officers are part of the team, and therefore, it's not just about them and their relationships. It's really about the whole, and the, and that benefits the donors. For sure. And, and I think that team component is really critical. We spent a lot of time trying to think about, you know, what does this diagram look like, right? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we explain the work of our team and what we're offering? And it, it ended up being, I probably could find it if I went looking for it, but you know, that the, the donor is at the very center mm-hmm. of, of the consideration of what it is that they want to achieve through the university, right? Through the, through the programs of the university or the people of the university or whatever the case might be. The prospect manager is in the lead trying to do their very best to tell the story of what it is that the, that the donor wants to achieve and, and um, what kind of impact they're aiming to have, right? And then and then with the help of, of principal gifts, they have an option to kind of activate a bunch of functions or not on campus to achieve, say, a proposal. Um, for, some, for some donors, that might be dinner at the chancellor's residence and an impact report and an event. And, uh, you know, it totally depends on the, on the donor, right? It's a campaign of one. Um, and for some people, it's really not that. They're, they, they want to know they're doing the good thing. They want a solid proposal that has data behind it um, that they feel has been ground truth, but they don't want the bells and whistles. And, and there's no judgment in that. It's just trying to um, deliver a meaningful experience, a powerful experience. And, and really, from my perspective, that powerful moment of joy that I believe philanthropy um, has inherent at the heart of it. Um, and, and putting the, the prospect manager in the driver's seat for some of that. So long as there's a strategy, right? You have to have a strategy. You can't tell me it's in your head. You can't, you know, change it from week to week. It needs to be in writing on paper because the donor is going to have a long relationship with the institution. And and it's about how we keep the institution connected with that person so they don't feel like they're telling their story over and over again to eight different people. We have to have that institutional memory and we have to keep iterating on that strategy. So it has to be in writing, but provided it's in writing and we can make some course, you know, corrections around things that may or, you know, may not be strong strategy. Let's keep, let's keep people in a position where they can continue to lead and grow. Um, because over time, that's how the whole team is going to perform better. That's how we're going to deliver better for donors. It's how we're going to deliver better for students and faculty and all those impacted by the mission work of the university. There are a couple of pieces to that that are potentially complicated, at least philosophically, and I'm sure you have thoughts on this. And one has to do with the donor orientation um, and the other with metrics. So just taking the first one first, there's a debate in our field, as there has been using a variety of language over the years, but right now it's particularly hot about whether or not things should be donor-centric or community-centric. And without trying to burrow into that too much, I'm curious to know how you have ensured uh, that as you build that that process that um, where the donor is at the center of the activity, that that doesn't necessarily mean the donor is dictating 
with the absolutely. Yeah, I hear that, and that's a very fair question to ask. I think the way I would, when I talk about being donor centric, um, I I would love for teams and conversations to to get to the heart of the purpose that the donor is trying to achieve, maybe not the mechanism of the how, right? The create this center, the hire this person. I don't mean that, mm-hmm. but, but what are they, what is their primary priority? They want to solve a particular problem. What is that problem? What does that look like for them? What kind of impact could we legitimately deliver um, with the institution as we, as it currently stands or as it could potentially stand that directionally it's on its way here. If we had a catalyst of X, we could achieve Y, right? But, but I do believe that development officers are advocates for both, right? You're absolutely, you're advocate for the donor and you're an advocate for the institution and you can't put either in a pickle. And so there are gifts, I do believe that people should say no to, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. There's a way to do that, that um, um, puts forward what the institution could do. And, and there are gonna be times where donors don't wanna do that. And I think that has to be okay because you have to preserve the integrity of um, of the institution, certainly of academic freedom, all of that is really critical. I haven't been um, in. Let me say it differently. I've 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 been in conversations where donors didn't understand why we were putting forward a something in a proposal, for instance, an endowed chair or something, where they really needed to understand the why. We didn't. We hadn't gotten to the place where we articulated why that was the answer, and so they're until they understood that. Um, they might've had questions about, why are you asking for that thing? How does that help us achieve what we want to achieve? But I've not been in a place, um, thankfully, where, you know, some, some massive gift has come along that has, um, you know, put anybody in the unenviable position of having to say, we wish, but no. Um, I know that there certainly are institutions that have, and I respect that position because there are some things that, that should be declined. The other part of this, which is complex, is something you and I have discussed separately, and that's about metrics, that um, there's a lot of emphasis in our field to you know get the numbers right, to say we should have so many meetings and so many calls and so many this and so many that, and all of that is reasonable from the standpoint at distance, then maybe we can make a plan. Um, but does that really serve the purpose? What is your view about how to make sure that we get the work done and we can predict things, but we do it in a way that conforms to all the principles and values you've just outlined about a successful program where the donor is at the center of making that great thing happen that's aligned with the mission of the institution? Yeah, that's a great question. I've I've thought about this a lot, and I think where I've seen it work most successfully, because I do believe, I want to be really clear, Success follows activity, right? There's just no doubt about that. You have to be able to pick up the phone and make the calls. And if you make 40 calls and you get 10, that's better than if you make 10 calls and get two. Um, So I do believe that, especially as somebody is entering an organization or or early in their career, that that laying that kind of, um, painting the picture of what strong activity looks like to yield strong results is very helpful. I do think it's also very helpful to put the lens of what kind of portfolio, if you have portfolios at your institution, does a particular person have? 
Is it full of discovery with people who may not even answer calls, right? Or answer emails? Or is it a very um, mature portfolio that many others have had before, before them? And um, there's a lot of warmth toward the institution there and a lot of known capacity and so on. Is it a portfolio for somebody who's actually done their job over the past two years and asked every single person in their portfolio for money because they've been in campaign and now everybody is in stewardship. And so you're now going to be taking a very high performer and putting them back into discovery. And so the degree to which you can paint the picture of what a high performing gift officer in their third year in their position looks like this many number of visits, typically they're raising about this much money. They maybe had this many assists, whatever metrics you're using. And then go from the ground up from, and your portfolio looks like this. So let's try on some of these, you know, figures for size, hopefully stretch, but not impossible, right? I like that stretch zone because it, it gives somebody something to strive for, but it doesn't give them that immediate moment of I'm day one and it's, I already know this is an impossible metric for me to hit. And now I'm just discouraged out of the gates. Um, and, and getting to, to mutual buy-in between the, the manager who hopefully is a seasoned gift officer and the person who's who's just starting on what those goals look like and then checking in on that. How's it going through the course of the year? If you're on top of um, and have an open discussion with the, the person you're managing about other things that are going on, there are things that can happen that can wildly change those metrics that are completely legitimate. You know, I've had eight-figure gifts that had really intense you know, gift agreement negotiations where I was on the phone with eight different parties negotiating really important, important, important points for the university. The university needed me doing that. Was that of higher value than an additional three visits? Yeah. Did my managers agree to that? Yeah. Right. So in the end, did I have as many visits as maybe I was set out to have? No. Did we get the gift agreement through? Yes. Right. That should be an ongoing discussion in my view. Um, so. I don't know if that helps answer your question. I think, I think that they're directionally important, but I, I really think the qualitative conversations that go on in the interim between the metrics or when they're set and when they're assessed is, is a critical part of, um, of anybody's performance. So do you believe it's possible to state it in the most simple way to have a, a, a system, a process, a fundraising process which can be a balance between those qualitative and quantitative metrics. Yes, I do. I do um, believe it's possible. You, you've taken all that experience, which is pretty extraordinary. And, and, and then you decided in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> a 100 year pandemic, to hightail it and return to Michigan, where now you are <laughs> serving in the AVP role at one of the largest schools in the country, uh, not just in terms of students, but alumni, and maybe one, maybe in the world, and also has to happens to have a lot of members of my family who've gone through there. <laughs> um, but I, but I'm so curious, uh, how they got you to come back and how excited you are to be back. again. And how is this job different for you? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, when I originally got, um, the call from the recruiter, I did the same thing that I'd done for years and that I'd asked all my teammates to do, which is to say, thank you very much for your interest and know right now and maybe call me back later. She's the only person who'd ever gotten a call me back later. And that was because she was, she was calling for an, inst an institution in Michigan. Right. 
We love Michigan. We were married here. All three of our girls were born here. I've spent deep, deep roots and family and friends here and, and a love for the land that's pretty palpable. And so, um, but we also have kids that were in school and I had displaced them once and I knew how disruptive that was. And so um, when the recruiter called, I said, yes, that's very nice. And I have a seventh grader and there's no way. So call me back in six years and maybe we'll talk. Um, and that was it. And, and then she called back, gosh, it must've been three or four months later. And we'd been through the holidays and, you know, we'd, I don't think we had, we are one, once more, we, we were a, a small family and, and we love being together, but it was another, you know, another set of holidays where we weren't with our family. And um, it's a very serious undertaking to drive from Colorado to Mich- Michigan. It's a three day, <laughs> three day journey. Yes. Um, and so our ears were a little bit more open to just the prospect of being able to be back in proximity. And, and of course, Michigan state is a, phenomenal institution and those that opportunity does not come along very often so so I asked permission (laughs) I cut the call on a Saturday and I sat my family down and I asked permission to have a single conversation and I was granted permission by the 14 year old to have a single conversation Um, and we really just you know every step along the way was discussion with the family about um, whether we were ready to take the next step because I've as you have probably uh, led an enormous number of searches and there's nothing worse than um, when working with somebody and taking them through a process only to have them conclude that this is wonderful, but, you know, say, I don't want to live in mid-Michigan. Well, if we don't, if we, we should know that right now, if we don't want to live in mid-Michigan or we don't want to go back to Michigan, we need to say that now and spare them the time um, and the hassle of, of, of me being part of this search. And so we were very um, intentional every step along the way. And it's been just a joy to be back. It was terrifying for sure, to your point about the pandemic. Um, I believe it was March, March when we all went home in March, uh, when I got the offer early April and we kind of looked at each other like, are we really gonna do this? The whole world could, we don't know what's gonna happen, right? The economy collapsed, all kinds of things could happen. How do we make this decision right now? Um, but my leadership at, at Boulder was extraordinarily supportive. They knew that this was coming from a place of love for family and, um, desire to be closer and, um, and encouraging and, um, the opportunity was phenomenal. And we just decided, you know, if bad things happen in the world, we'd like to be closer to family anyway. So (laughs) we're going to take this leaf and we know that it's nothing is, um, guaranteed. Right. But um, it has been a, a wonderful experience. And and I still am in tight contact with, you know, my colleagues at Colorado. That was a wonderful experience, too. And I have great um, love and admiration for the institution. And I'm still getting to know this one. So June the 1st was my one year anniversary, and I've been entirely remote that whole time. Mm-hmm. So um, I know very little about the campus. I know very little about the faculty. Um, I'm getting to know the team, but I don't know them in the way that you get to know them when you bump into each other in the kitchen, right? Um, so I'm looking forward to having those opportunities as um, the world starts to convene again. And it sounds like you're a person who gets to know people and then you keep those relationships. And that's been something you've mentioned all throughout this conversation from the people you knew back in Alaska 
person who made the recommendation for you about uh, what you should think about uh, to study at Princeton, all these different steps, including your friends out there that you work with and Boulder. Um, it must be a strange experience to be working virtually. What kind of strain pressures and maybe opportunities does that provide for your vision of leadership right now? If, if other people are listening to the conversation at one level, it's a chance to learn about your path and how you apply these principles in the office. What else can we learn from this experience that you've learned that maybe we can gain from as we go back into offices and work with one another and bump into each other in the, in the kitchen again? Gosh, that's a great question. I think I, I remember um, when I when I started at um, one organization um, in my past, I had been hired by somebody who was then dismissed before I started. And so I felt like I had this very um, intentional process when I apply or when I interview someplace, I show up exactly as I am. And I do that on purpose because I want to be who I am, right? I, I have um, strong values-based beliefs about philanthropy and its, um, its place in the world and the power that it can bring to people's lives and the impact that it can have. And I want to know that I can operate in that vein. And so I'm going to be upfront about that. And so when this person was dismissed, I felt like, ooh, I'm walking into an environment where nobody has had those conversations with me. And now they're going to get to know me. And at that moment, I, I kind of created a mantra for myself, which was um, to be kind and competent. And just to, just to show up in that way every day, to put my nose down, to do the work, to be thoughtful, to be creative, to try to be really smart, to, to listen to people about what they need, to try to get um, data on how I can help them, uh, how I can remove obstacles and add firepower where they need it so that they can show up as better thems, right? I want to be me and I want them to be, feel empowered to be them. Um, and, and I just had to repeat that mantra to myself over and over again, just to be kind and competent. And, and there's a little bit of that about the pandemic as well, right? Like showing up, um, asking hundreds of people to trust me, right. And the direction that, uh, I'm providing the, to believe what I'm saying to, um, believe that I care about them and what's going on in their families doing just a immensely challenging time. Right. And you never knew what was under the surface of somebody's lives that if somebody's life at any given moment, um, that's a lot to ask a team when you're just a square head on a screen. And the only way that I knew or know how to, um, make that real to people is, is, is just to show up that way every single day, to be consistent in that earnestness and the hope that um, over time, people will believe it and trust it. And my kind of driving principle is no matter what I'm doing, I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror, right? At the end of the day and go, okay, how did that go? Did I, 
mess up my side of the street in any way, if I have a feeling in my gut that I did something wrong, try to assess what that was. Did I, was I sharp with somebody in a meeting? Did I maybe not communicate as clearly as I should have? What was that about? Who was that about? And then try to circle back the next day to check in and make sure that um, I can clean it up. If I made a mess, I clean it up. Right? Um, and that's just, it's, it's a practice for me. And, and I just have to trust that showing up that way over and over and over again will yield the results. The same kind of results I talked about earlier with donors, right? If you, if you show up um, and do the right thing by the donor in the institution, that, that funding, amazing funding, gifts that um, sometimes you didn't even know were possible will result from that. And, and I've seen that happen now over 20 years. And so I have some evidence for it. I don't have evidence for it in every case, but I, I do. there's enough to be a pattern, right? And so I think I would just say that the consistency of, um, of, of being the same person day in and day out without um, strong variance is, is po pretty powerful. It's a quiet, um, a quieter way of leading perhaps, but um, during this time, I hope um, it's been uh, helpful and reassuring to the team that I'm currently have the pleasure of working with. I know that uh, as we're closing, I wanted to ask you about returning to Alaska. I believe that you said you're going to be going back for a visit. Um, and as you do that, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that uh, you're, you, when you tried to explain to your mom early on in your career that you were excited about this thing uh, that you know was fundraising or advancement, she might not have understood what in the world you were talking about. You're going to go out and visit with her again. What does she understand of your work today? And uh, because it sounds like you are a more experienced version uh, of the person who came to work authentically throughout your whole life. So you're going back as the same person. What is that conversation like with your mom now? Oh, that's interesting. I look forward to that conversation with her. Um, yeah, two weeks from yesterday is when I go. Um, I think what she would say is without knowing the details of, of what I do, which does look quite different here than it has in other positions, what she would say is, is consistent is my drive to be of service in my life, that that's very apparent to her that um, with the limited time that I'm granted, I want to um, leave things better than I found them. And I, I'm not a climatologist. There are things that I can't do, but this is something that I, I do know and, and I can um, facilitate some change with. And so she would, she would point to that and she would also point to how often I've talked about the power of teams and um, the really amazing things that we can all do together when we're all pointed the same direction, when we trust one another and when we're excited about the potential on the horizon, even if it's just a dot, you know, if we all believe in we're heading toward that dot and, and it's, it's worth heading towards and we're excited about it. It's just magical what happens in teams um, when you earnestly believe the same thing and are driving to the same point. And um, it takes time, you know, it takes time to develop that in a team. Um, it can take years. I think 
it was probably a good two and a half or three years before that was really, really rolling in a very meaningful um, way in engineering, for instance. But um, but that's been very consistent, I think, in in the choices that I've made um, and the roles that I've uh, moved into and how I've gone about that work and everything that I've done. So that that's probably where she'll she'll be more interested in uh, exploring what that looks like and how it's different now than it's been before. Thank you so much, Anne. Really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for the invitation, Jay. It's been a pleasure to know you and uh, to have you as the class agent for the class of 1980 <laughs> many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget your pitch to your classmates. Really? Um, on the back porch of Norpines. Oh, wow. That's you rough. and John Hagner. Oh. I think it was the, the pancake breakfast pitch. Um, but I, I just have, have appreciated um, the work that you have brought forward into our industry over the years and, and how hard you have worked at that. I just remember all kinds of different um, <laughs> different things that you stood up over the years and um, watched your entrepreneurial engine run. And it's been wonderful. So I'm so glad we're still connected. And thank you for this opportunity to talk today. Same here. Um... I don't know where I'll cut it at the end there, but that was wonderful. And I hope you didn't mind that it went long. I just really enjoyed uh, listening to you. It was really a pleasure. Not at all. It's always a pleasure. And I hope our paths cross in person. Oh, they will. I mean, <laughs> it's going to be hard to avoid me when I eventually make my way up there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I know you'll be gone when I next go, but maybe um, late summer uh, or early fall if you're around. And, and Sounds great. Safe. I'd love to see you. Same. Okay. Have a great evening. Uh, take care. Bye. Bye. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.